Welcome to CalCast, your creator national podcast. Network News, Episode 184. Welcome, GNN fans, to another episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. Greetings to our faithful God Network News listeners. We are excited to bring you more great stories of movements that are happening amongst unreached people groups. Get ready for some fantastic stories of God's faithfulness, of God working even in this difficult time of COVID. Um, I grew up in uh, America, in California in a Christian family, but my father died when I was really young, and I went on a path of rebellion, mad at God. Why do other boys have a father and I don't? Got into a lot of trouble, uh, got kicked out of school my last year of high school because of uh, drug dealing, got locked up in jail, and uh, reached rock bottom in my life. When I got out of jail, some kids invited me to a, a camp on top of a mountain. I'd never been to a camp. But I figured maybe that's a good place to go meet girls. <laughs> so God used that motivation to get me to the right place where I saw these young people on fire for Jesus. And I said, uh, that's good for you, but not for me. I hardened my heart for one day, two days, three days, four days. On the last day of the camp, God's spirit broke through. And uh, I got on my knees, cried my eyes out, uh, confessed my sin, turned my life over to Jesus. But I didn't know where this was going to take me. But it was at a time in California when there were a lot of us off the beaches, off the streets coming to faith in what has later on become known as the Jesus People Movement. Um, some of you younger people <laughs> have just heard about this or maybe heard about your parents talking about it. Well, I was part of that in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of us from uh, pretty bad backgrounds uh, in, in America, and then it, it went to South America, even came over to the Philippines. It was a movement. It had all the aspects of movement out of control, out of man's control, but in God's control. And we were uh, all coming to faith quickly. There were no leaders. Uh, so I'm two weeks old in Jesus, and I'm put into leadership. How can you be a leader after two weeks? Well, in movements, there are no mature people. People are coming to faith fairly rapidly, and you must have a way of reproducing yourself into other people, modeling, taking people one step. And so uh, I was two weeks ahead of other people, so I was put in a leadership. Uh, 
And a lot of us uh, were falling. <laughs> it was messy. Movements are messy. If you want a nice, conducive, clean <laughs> movement, you'll never have it because <laughs> movements are messy. They're not in your control. If you start controlling it, you'll lose the momentum probably. And so just trying to uh, find this way to God and uh, helping other people as I was on my own route. And in this Jesus People movement, there really was only one mature leader, and his name was Pastor Chuck Smith. And he's going to be with the Lord now. Uh, and people say, wow, wasn't he a great preacher? And a lot of his sermons are put into volumes of books now. And uh, most of us would say, no, he was kind of dry <laughs> preacher and long-winded. He'd, he'd like to teach for a long period. But the thing that stuck out more than anything for movement was he had a father's heart. He, without spiritual fathering and mothering, there are never going to be a movement. And so he would put us in the, raise up leaders quickly and you'd fall and he'd pick you back up and say, try again. I believe in you. That was the key to the Jesus people movement. Reproducing leaders, even though they weren't perfect, uh, with the father's heart. And I was part of that and, uh, started hearing about mission and thought, is mission for other people or, or, uh, or is it for me? So I went on a mission trip before it was popular to do mission trips. Uh, lots of people today I asked, have you been on a mission trip? And they say, yeah, Jim, I've been on 20 mission trips. I said, why? Why are you taking you so long? You only need one mission trip. Because a mission trip is not a mission tour. Mission trip is taking yourself out of your comfort zone to go to some place that's uneasy, that's difficult for you in order to hear from God, to meet with God. And so I went to Japan and Korea for three months asking God, I got to know, is this mission thing for me or for other people? I'm not coming back to America until I hear from you. And yeah, Korea was was cool, getting up at 5 a.m. and praying with the Korean Christians. If you've never prayed with a Korean, go find one and pray with them. They're awesome. But I didn't hear God in Korea. It was in Japan in a very hard place uh, in Kyoto, kind of like the center of idol worship. And I was in a youth hostel one night praying uh, on a top bunk bed all night long, being honest with God, saying, God, I don't like being in a foreign country. I don't like not knowing the customs. I don't like not knowing the language. I don't like not knowing the, the, the food I'm eating. I can't be a missionary. And God came back very clearly to me and said, that's right, Jim, you can't be a missionary, but I can make you a missionary. And I realized that night that this mission call had nothing to do with uh my likes or dislikes, my abilities or inabilities, but had everything to do with being obedient to God. Obedience, huge for calling, for movements, for a whole life. And so uh, I knew that night I'd leave America, never go back. Met my wife. She had a calling. We said, hey, let's do this together. <laughs> we got married and quickly left for Papua, Irianjaya, Indonesia. Uh, we were like uh, lots of people. Uh, lots of young people are excited about things. One week you want to go to China, next week you want to go to India, next week you want to go to Africa. But the thing that really grabbed our hearts when we exposed ourselves to what's going on in the world was unreached tribal people. People time is forgotten. So we looked at the, we're the highest number of unreached tribal people in the world, and that was Irianjaya, the western half of the island of New Guinea, now called Papua, part of Indonesia. So that's where we came and we landed and we asked, where's the hardest group that nobody wants to go to? And they pointed us to the south, to the southern lowlands. So we immediately in the first week came, went down to the 
Southern Lowlands Looking for a Tribe and uh, end up in the Sawi tribe. If you've read the book Peace Child, Don Richardson was in the northern ha- uh, southern half of the tribe. We were in the northern half of the tribe. And so to kind of uh, isolated two different groups by a lot of jungle and two river systems. So we uh, were in this tribe and, again, movement. Saw movement happen. We began our life in the jungle uh, using uh, Philippians chapter 2 really is our method of evangelism. If uh, God can become incarnate, become like man, surely we can become like the Sawi tribes people. Uh, becoming one heart, one soul, one mind. Become, coming into the world of people. Not preaching at them, but showing them Jesus in their everyday life. So every day my wife would go foraging for food in the jungle. I'd go hunting in the jungle with the men and in this way, we started getting this language together, and after a year, we're pretty fluent in the language. We're starting to preach and teach about Jesus, but no one's believing. We go into the second year, we're doing even more. They're starting to understand some. We go into the third year, we're doing a little bit of Bible translation now. They're understanding the gospel, but nobody's accepting it. And we're getting our first opposition. Village shaman, uh, witch doctors, who have real power over the people. And they put out an ultimatum. They said, if anybody accepts this, this message has come from the outside, we'll kill them with witchcraft. You're listening to God Network News Podcast with your host, Cal Curtis. Look up our website at godnetworknews.com. And you could feel the atmosphere tense like a curtain of, of depression, of heaviness holding people down. Them wanting to rise up, but being held down by fear. And I... I couldn't do anything more, and one one day cried out to God, God, I can't convince these people anymore about who Jesus is. Please come in a way that only you can do and open their hearts. And God did it in a way I would have never dreamed. Happened on a hot day in the jungle. The sun was in the noon sky. From our hut, we heard the death wail, the crying for the dead. When you hear that, you know someone's died. I jumped out of our hut to the ground. We're about... Uh, two meters up off the ground, round pole, foundation, that, that's roof, bark floor. I jumped to the ground, ran the direction I heard the crying. Half an hour later, I came out at the riverbank where there's a thousand people. Women are throwing themselves in the mud the way they mourn the death of someone. The men are all in the shallow water looking for something. I asked the people, what what's happened here? And uh, the guy next to me said, Jim, early morning, a young family got in their canoe, went off to the jungle to forage for food. When they came back, they beached the canoe and they took their packs of food up to their hut. But they left their little one-year-old child in the canoe to wait for them. When they came back to get their little son, he wasn't there. He would tried to stand up in the canoe and had fallen over into the water. For half an hour, they looked for him, could not find him. Because the water in our river is inky black with algae that grows in it. You put your hand a few centimeters under the water, it disappears. So they looked and looked, and finally one man comes up out of the water with the body of the boy in his arms. The stomach is swollen from water inhalation. He's not breathing. He's dead. They bring the body up on high ground, laid on a banana leaf, and everybody's mourning, berserk with grief. My wife comes on the scene, and because she knows the technique of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, she kneels down and tries to revive this little boy. For five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, she kept working. Finally, she stopped, realizing he's been in the water too long. He's really dead. And she starts to pray. I'm over here, and I stand up, and I start to vocalize a prayer I've never prayed in my life. 
because there's a gift of faith that God gives. It's not a faith that we possess. It's a faith that God imparts at a point in time when he wants to do something. And just spontaneously, I started praying, God, even though these people don't acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior, as a sign of your love and mercy, allow this little boy to live again. All of a sudden now, the mouth of that little boy came spewing all the water. He started breathing shallow, breathing big. His eyes opened. He was alive again. His parents grabbed him up, and everybody started screaming uh, and uh, astonishment. Finally, I quieted everybody down, and I said, what we've just now seen, this isn't anything that I did or that my wife did. This is the God we've come to tell you about. He did this as a sign of his love and mercy. One week after that happened, we were invited to one village to teach and preach about the way of salvation for an entire week, morning till night, every day for a week. At the end of that week, the first people started believing on Jesus. Not one, two, three, but 10, 20, 30, whole family groups together coming to faith every week, wave after wave, till eventually 80% of this population uh, became born-again believers. When I talk to my friends in Africa, East Africa, West Africa, who are involved in movements, they all tell me every movement that they've seen happen came after a miracle. Miracles ushering, ushering forth movements. You may be in Australia, you may be in another country uh, listening to me talk, and you're saying, Jim, we don't see movements happen. We don't see uh, miracles happening here like you do in Papua. How come you see so many miracles in Papua? And I could tell you miracle after miracle for hours. Uh, why do we see more here? A couple of reasons. I, I think we're more desperate. If God doesn't show up, our people can't make it. And when you're desperate like that, God shows up. Um, secondly, I think God wants to do a lot more miracles, even wherever you are at right now. But he doesn't want us to grab the glory, to steal his name from the movement, uh, from the, from the miracle that just happened. Uh, example, when someone comes to faith, uh, we, uh, uh, come, a miracle happens in somebody's life. We usually bring them to church <laughs> and have them testify. Wrong. <laughs> Mo- uh, miracles are for non-believers to show them the love of God in the midst of them. It's not for Christians to get all excited about. Miracles happen for the point of evangelism. You see them happening all throughout Scripture. Jesus uh, did a miracle so that people's eyes would be opened because the God of this age has blinded their eyes. Um, maybe another example about miracles. Um, a few years ago, uh, one of our, we're in the city now, and on the edge of the city, a lot of population that have immigrated here from off-island, other islands. And there was a, a lady who started coming to a women's group, discovery group, and she started following Jesus there. Never come to a church service. And then uh, when we had a big Christmas celebration, all of our groups coming together, she came. We had a, a big service, hundreds and hundreds of people, a couple thousand uh, and she came and she enjoyed it and went home and her f- husband heard about it. And he came at her with a machete. And he threw, came down with, on the, with the machete on her and she raised her arm to defend herself and the machete cut through her arm, severing the whole arm. 
just a piece of skin barely holding on. And But the arteries have been severed. The blood is pumping everywhere. She's on the ground screaming. Uh, other ladies from her group live nearby. They heard her screaming. They came, put her in a vehicle, rushed her to the hospital. The hospital here in our town couldn't handle it, so they overed her. They sent her to the hospital in the major provincial capital next to us. The doctor, when he sees her, he says, wow, this arm is gone. I have to amputate. But she's lost so much blood. I'll uh, uh, stabilize the arm, give her blood tonight, and then in the morning I have to operate and amputate the arm. So that night in the hospital, uh, she's in there with the arm stabilized, receiving blood, and her the women from her group are all around her bed praying for her all night long in the hospital. And in the middle of the night, they want my wife to pray for her because my wife, I really believe, has gifts of healing. The majority of the people that she serves uh, medically or prayer or a combination of the two, nearly everybody gets healed. I call that gifts of prayer, gifts of healing. And so they want her to pray. So they ask her to pray, but she can't go there because she's in a stage of mar- malaria, plus four malaria, the worst stage. She's uh, high fever and, and uh, convulsing in our house. So they bring a hand phone, a cell phone, and she prays over the cell phone. Can God do a miracle over a cell phone? Yes. She prays over the cell phone and in the hospital, they put the other cell phone to Marici, uh, this lady's ear and uh, for her to hear. And this is what she said to me the next day when I was at the hospital. enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to help us continue to bring exciting stories fresh from the field. Visit our website at godnetworknews.com and select the PayPal link on the right side of the page or consider becoming a Patreon partner to receive access to more valuable materials exclusive to our members.